You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name's Dean, and we are going through the whole book of the Bible, in the, the whole Bible, I should say, all 66 books of the Bible uh, in one year. Different books every week, just working through them to understand the big picture, the whole story, God's story uh, that he's given to us through the scriptures. Uh, a reminder uh, that we have our equip classes tonight. They're at five o'clock on Sunday evenings, a chance to really kind of go deeper, take a next step. I uh, just kind of have maybe go beyond Sunday morning in your Bible study uh, and you're sure equipping to live the Christian life, uh, so I hope that you would uh, consider being a part of that tonight. So we're in First and Second Samuel, and before we jump in, I want to go ahead and pray for us and ask the Lord to uh, continue to be with us and to bless our service. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful that you're sovereign over us, that what it means for us to prosper is to learn what it means to be your people, to be in relationship with you, to enjoy you as our heavenly Father. Uh, we're thankful that you not only love your people, but you like your people too, that you delight in us. What a crazy thing to think about, that our Creator, our Heavenly Father, loves and delights in people like us who mess up all the time. It's just, I can't even fathom it, but I worship you for it, and I praise you for it. And I ask that that reality will cause praise in my life uh, to want to give you honor and glory because of the great and good God that you are. As you speak through me this morning, as you speak with all the churches in our city as they gather, as we know we're not the only ones doing this, that we'll all lift up the name of Christ and that you will keep the enemy out of this town, out of our churches, and that we will see people turn from this world to you, the only one who truly loves them unconditionally. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So here's the setting in 1 Samuel, in 2 Samuel, just to lead up. Remember, everything goes back, and if you haven't been here, I'm really glad you are here, uh, but I'd love for you maybe to catch up by going on iTunes. We've been just rolling through the books of the Bible. Uh, so just to catch up really quick, the big idea is that God made a promise to Abraham. Uh, this is after the flood. This is after everything takes place where God is judging the world uh, for their sin, for their rebellion against him, uh, which God is just to do as a holy God. And he calls out a man named Abraham and his family and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation from you. There's going to be many descendants from you. And how we ultimately understand this is spiritual descendants. Yes, there's a land promise. Yes, there actually is a people. But ultimately, that promise is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we see this whole timeline of the Bible going from there, being worked out by God with a group of people, Abraham's descendants, from that promise. And here's what he says in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. He says, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. So there's a promise here in this problem, uh, to this promise to Abraham of kingship, of, of royalty that's going to be coming from this family. So we go throughout history, there hasn't been a king up to this time, and we see in the book of Judges from last week that there was no king. And as a result of that, we're told, people did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Jerusalem, there was no king in Israel, so everybody basically did what they thought was right. We said last week, it was, you know, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, before that was cool. It was like, live your truth before that was a thing. Everyone did what was right in their eyes, not under the guidance of God, not even under the guidance of a local, even secular king, but in what was right in their eyes. But in the book of Judges, while there's chaos and there's rebellion against God, and God is punishing sin, we see this in the book of Ruth. We're told this happened in the time of the judges. A son has been born to Naomi. We covered this last week. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father 
of David. David who would go on to become God's king. So here in the chaos, here in the sin, here in the rebellion, here in God's judgment, here when it even seems like God's done with us, maybe God's turned his back on us because of how many times we've messed up, here is God working out his promise. And a baby's born who would have a baby who would have a baby named David. So now we get to 1 Samuel. And really the purpose of the book of 1 Samuel is to highlight two major events, which is first the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, which is basically chapters 8 through 12, and the second is the preparation of David to sit on the royal throne that was occupied in the meantime, as we'll see, by someone named Saul. And we come to someone named Hannah. Hannah someone who was praying for a child, who desired herself to have a child. And here's what she prayed, also finding out that she was going to be able to have a child, that the Lord would bless her with that. Hannah prayed, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now the baby that Hannah's going to have is actually Samuel, who is going to serve as the last judge. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. But those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol. He raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noble men and gives them a throne of honor. So the foundation of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, the wicked perish in darkness, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king and will lift up the horn of his anointed. Now that's kind of a weird prayer for someone who prayed for a child and by God's grace was able to conceive and have a child. Like, what's going on here? Why, why, why are we going to all of those things rather than just kind of a basic, God, thank you, and, and, and I'm grateful, and this has been hard for me, and like, 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 what's going on here? Well, we have to understand that this prayer really is not focused on Hannah being able to give birth to a child and having a child. There's so much more here taking place than that. See, in chapter two, Hannah prayed, and what Hannah's doing is she's representing Israel. Yes, this is a real event that actually happened with Hannah, but she is also serving as kind of a living metaphor of the fact that Israel, it was very hopeful as God's people to thrive and to flourish, but they were also very barren. There was this time in their land as God's people where they had desires, but as a result, Israel was, we could say, a spiritual dry land. She says in verse 10 that to give strength to a king 
Well, who is she talking about here? Well, her prayer is talking about the anointed king to come. There was no king at the time, so what's she talking about? It's a futuristic prayer because there's no king at the time. She's actually talking about God's king. She's actually talking about David. So we always try to be just like really real here and just really sensitive about different struggles and, and, and the things that pains people go through. But it's important to know that Hannah's prayer, like the purpose of it here is to point us to something else. Like the point of Hannah's prayer, that this is not in the context of, of, of childbearing. That, that, that's not really the point of this text. She's in this story to point us forward, to declare her great hope in God who is going to deliver the people. And he's going to do it in unordinary ways. He's going to do it in a way that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. She's talking about God's king. But Israel takes steps in the wrong directions over and over again, and, and we see Saul come, we go to David, and, and she's praying about the things that will happen. As we go through 1 Samuel, you can think back to the things that Hannah said, and I'd love for you to read it on your own later, and you can connect the dots from things Hannah prayed for that actually happened throughout the rest of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. So David is an interesting figure here. Uh, he's the one, again, Hannah's praying about, and he serves almost like a John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, is what Samuel was going to do for David. He functions as kind of a link between the judges and the kingship. Kind of a go-in-between kind of filler sort of figure, but also with great significance in leadership. We've got to realize that God saves in very upside-down ways. We see in the scriptures that what the world calls strong, that God calls weak. What the world sees as foolishness, God says is his wisdom and the power of him unto salvation. Hannah prays in verse 9 for a person, she says, does not prevail by his own strength. And we see so far throughout the Old Testament, the message seems to be, hey, this example right here, not this. Like this over here, not this. Like this is not ultimate. Like this is not the way. Like judges having them rule over you, or, or maybe, I guess, oversee, it doesn't work. Having priests can be helpful, doesn't work, because only God can forgive sin, and you're still gonna rebel. Like, having prophets, they're gonna tell you God's word, but that's not gonna work either. It's like this, not this, not this, and then we see, eventually, in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene, and it's as if God says this. That everything else is broken, Everything else is simply human, except for the fact that there will be one who does all things exactly right. So what happens out of the gate here is Samuel grows up, and God speaks to Samuel. Chapter 3, verse 1, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. That's the setting. And prophetic visions were not widespread. The word of the Lord was rare. As if they just hadn't heard from God in a while. They hadn't actually heard a word of God from one of the actual appointed prophets at the time that they hadn't had anything from him. He's hadn't communicated. It was rare to hear anything from God. And then God speaks to Samuel directly. And here's what we see in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. And Samuel's words came to all Israel. So we had this big swing. How incredible is that? We go from the word of God is rare right now in Israel to now all of Israel's people have God's word. From no word to having his word. From no prophet to a type of prophet. 
I mean, think about what it'd be like to be an Israelite in those days, of having nothing, no word whatsoever from God. We have God's word on our iPhones. I mean, think about that. We have a word from God ready for us 24 hours a day. I listen to it on the Dwell app. Her name's Rosie. She has a British accent. She reads me God's word. Right? I, I have access to, to, to the Bible all the time. And here are people that had not heard a word from them. It was rare. And now all of a sudden they have the word of the Lord finally spoken to them. Because the Bible had not been completed yet or anywhere close. And here we are, we always have a word from the Lord. We should never take that for granted. So Israel is still going into battles, still conquering different lands or different areas around them, taking the land. And Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle, we see in this text, and camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. I could never be an Israelite because just way too much camping. I'm, I'm very endorsing. Just wanted to share that. I wouldn't work for me. I'd be like, God, take me now. Uh, the Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel. And as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Israelites? Like, we usually win. What's going on here? Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Then it'll go with us and save us from our enemies. So here's the Philistines, probably their most difficult neighbor, their biggest challenge, their biggest rival, we could say. And their solution is just to take the Ark with them. The Ark of the Covenant was that they would carry the law of God. The tablets would be inside that. God told them how they were to design it, very specific, very sacred. There was rules about how to handle the Ark, how to touch the Ark, all from God. But they, weren't, they were treating it not as God's words with them and God's, this holy idea of God with them, but they saw it more as a good luck charm. It's like, let's take that with us. That's our solution. Let's just bring this with us and we'll win it wasn't, oh, the Lord's with us, or let's go seek God, let's see what God's word says, let's see what Samuel has to say, who God is using, instead it was, hey, let's, let's bring this with us here. And I think about that, how many for us, and I'm not saying that I'm removed from any of this, how many of us is it really true that faith is kind of a good luck charm? Just kind of bring the faith with us. We just sort of bring it with us. It's sort of a, you say that quick prayer before you go do something, or you pray that rosary bead really quick, or you just, you know, maybe if I give this, you know, I give some chocolate up for Lent, then maybe things will work out better for me, or, you know, whatever it might be. And that's really actually nothing new. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, so now the enemies actually have this sacred possession. They took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it to the temple of Dagon. So now it's in a false god, like an idol's temple, and placed it next to his statue. Like, what a swing. Like, we're seeing the consequences here of what all happened throughout the judges of, God's rebellion, of their rebellion against God and now what no word from God has looked like for them. And when the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon. I love this. Their false idol they made themselves fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Imagine that. Like you crafted this idol in the temple. You capture the ark. You bring in like, hey, we're winning. Our God's better than their God. And you walk in the next day and your idol is bowed down. It's fell on the ground before God. It's amazing. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. 
But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon falling with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Like, I, I love it. That's just, uh, that's too good. Only Dagon's torso remained. It's like, hey, there's your God's torso. Good luck with that. Right, like, like, like smart move, you guys. This, this, is, uh, this is the God for you. This is why still today, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon and Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. I love that. It's like, oh, yeah, our God, like he collapsed and they broke him into pieces, but don't step on him. He might get mad. It's just like, okay. So the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and his territory and afflicted them with tumors. One thing in the scriptures that God's not afraid to do is that he's not afraid of anything, but you know what I mean, is to tell us how foolish idols are. Like he's not afraid to mock them. Like he's not afraid to tell them this is ridiculous. Like there's a reason why in, in Psalm chapter 14 it says the fool says in his heart there's no God. It might be arrogant for me to mock someone. That might not be my place to do that as a human being who has his own faults and his own sins. But it's never, ever inappropriate for the God who is the creator of the universe who deserves all worship to look down and go, basically, LOL, there's your dude's torso on the ground. Basically what's happening here happens throughout the scriptures over and over again. When people of Ashdod saw it was happening, they said, the ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God, Dagon. Isn't that interesting? Rather than going, wait, this is fake and this God is real, let's worship him. Instead, they're going, get this out of here. Like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to talk about this. So let's, let's change the subject. Uh, we're not going to talk religion at the table. I mean, let's just get, get it all out of here. What should we do with the Ark of Israel's God? The Ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. Send it to those guys. So they moved the Ark of Israel's God. After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. So it's in a new place, and God's bringing the rain down on them. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The people of Gath then sent the Ark of God to Ekron, but when it got there, the Ekrons cried out, they've moved the Ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. The Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together. They said, send the Ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. What's happening here? God is showing the people the foolishness of their false gods, showing them the reality of what it means then to be in rebellion against him. And this is just the ark present with them. God hadn't even really gotten started yet because he wants people to repent, to know that he is the one true God, that there is none like him, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also to show his people the uniqueness of their God, that they are his people and what that means. So the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months. The Philistines summoned the priests and diviners and pleaded, what should we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. And then they wound up doing that. And here's God making sure that all the nations know exactly who he is. So here's what happens as we kind of transition in chapter 8, is when it really starts to get to the point where these people still aren't fully getting it. Like they're praising God, the ark has been brought back, they're restored. and So we see this in chapter 8. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. 
They said to him, look, you are old. It's like, thanks. And your sons do not walk in your ways. So there's no real heir to hand off to. And your sons don't worship the God that you worship. Therefore appoint a king to judge us the same, don't miss these words, as all the other nations have. That verse Verse five, a king like the other nations. As in, we want to be like everyone else. We don't want to just be your unique people under your word and under your law and under your hand and your plan. We want to be like all the other people around us. Like we got, we got some FOMO going on here. Like, like we have this fear of missing out. I think there's more to be gained by, by being like them. When in their word that they know, Genesis 49 said, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Like you're going to have royalty. Or the staff from between his feet until he who's right comes. As in God's going to bring the right king for you. You just hold up. Deuteronomy 17 says, appoint a king the Lord chooses. Verse 18, when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves but the Lord won't answer you on that day. Rather than waiting for God's king that he has for you, you want to jump the gun. You don't think that God has what's best for you. You're not trusting God's word is what he's saying. So you want to be like everybody else and have the instant, kind of that microwave faith, like the automatic right here, right now, no waiting, no patience. When for generations, God's people had been seeing him answer promises over and over again that he's made with them. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. That's their reason. We want to be like the world. Our king will judge us, go out before us and fight our battles. God's been fighting your battles the whole time. Remember what your, your ancestors happened in Jericho? Like, remember what happened throughout the book of Joshua? Like, he's been doing this for you over and over again. Samuel listened to all the people's words and repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. You see God kind of going like, appoint a king for them. Here we go. Let them find out for themselves. It's not God's timing, not God's choosing a different king. The chapter before in chapter seven, they're saying, God has been our deliverer. Like we rejoice in God and now they're saying, we need a king like everybody else who's gonna win battles for us. How quickly can we forget, y'all? How quickly can we abandon without even, how, how quickly is that, that leak that takes place? Where we go from praising God to craving the things of this world, forgetting that God is the one who's already delivered us, especially as Christians who have the whole Bible written, that we've already been forgiven of our sins, we already are right with God, we're in relationship with him, we've been adopted into his family, we're told that we have every spiritual blessing in him, but something in us wants to go, no, this is better over here. So we see what happens with their king, he... A man had a son named Saul. Now think about Hannah's prayer earlier, how God uses unimpressive, not the ways of the world. Saul was an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. So they went for, this is like the Matthew McConaughey of their time, right? Like the guy, right? Like the dude. Everybody goes, and runs, everybody goes and runs and gets his biography when it comes out, right? It's, it's, it's that kind of idea. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah 
and said to the Israelites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians. Reminder, reminder, and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Like we've been there before, guys. But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, you must set a king over us. And Saul has some good moments and bad, made some good decisions, but then he made some terrible ones. And they showed he actually wasn't the man they thought he was. And the first time he's going to get introduced as the king, he's hiding from people. Like behind the baggage, he's hiding. He had a lot of jealousy issues. Regularly wanted to go after David. He was threatened by David, who would come later. Just so many issues with Saul. Some good moments, but some horrible ones as well. And we see even to the day of his death, Samuel, and they had disputes, he and Saul, never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. That's not God saying he made a mistake. God makes no mistakes. He's mourning over the situation for his people. Like he's mourning over the reality of what has taken place, and now they're real. Really, he's mourning over his people's decision to want to have a king rather than to trust the Lord for his king. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem as I'm going to send you to the place where my guy is because I've selected for myself a king from his sons, which they should have trusted God to do all along because he told them, I'm gonna, Abraham, king's going to come from you. End of Genesis. You're going to rule with the scepter. It's going to happen when, when God puts this person in place, like over and over again. So Saul, by his disobedience to God's messenger, Samuel, over and over, proves to be really an unsuitable king, we could say. So we see that David, on the other hand, in spite of moral failures, he will have as well as God's choice for this kingly dynasty to happen. So he, again, different way like Hannah prayed, different measures. He goes out to Jesse's place. Jesse brings out all of his sons, and they're all strong, and they're good looking, and they're kind of the cream of the crop. He doesn't even bring his youngest son, David, out because he didn't think David would be considered. Like David was out with the sheep. And Samuel's like, um, that's not the one. No, 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 no. Is there somebody else out there? It's like, well, my youngest. And here comes the youngest one, the least impressive. Foolishness in the eyes of the world to think that he would be the one. God's choice to begin this dynasty of kingship, which would then lead to the ultimate ruler, who will lead Israel into the ultimate blessing of bringing the gospel to all the nations. So one of David's first times on the scene is David and Goliath. And that's a passage of scripture that even a lot of people who have never read the Bible in their lives know a little bit about. It's probably, maybe you could say, the most well-known story in all the Bible, perhaps. Maybe Jesus being born in Bethlehem, or maybe something around Christmas, something along those lines. This, maybe Noah, and this is right up there for the most well-known stories in all the Bible. People who don't even believe use it as an analogy when a sports team is going to play a better team and, and those type of things. And, but the point of this passage, this encounter with Goliath more than anything, really is not even the battle, but it's the speeches that David gives along the way. The enemy comes to God's people and David stands for God's word and his glory and the testimony of our God. Goliath blasphemes God, mocks God. We see that David spoke to the men who were standing with him. This is the scene here. Goliath is coming, everything's going on. 
What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Others had tried, killed instantly, couldn't hang out this big giant man. Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Remember the Philistines, the ones that had the ark in their little fake god temple and the fake god fell down and his torsos hang on the ground? Remember those guys? Who's this Philistine? I don't care how big he is. I don't care if he's Andre the Giant. Like, what, what, should, should he defy the armies of the living God? Like, should he be able to do that? And David says this later, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin? Okay. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You've defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpse of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. You're going to be vulture food, man. They're going to be swarming around. Then all the world, here's the point, all the world's going to know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or by spear the Lord saves. The battle's the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Why? Because he's done that over and over again for our people. And we can trust him. This David and Goliath story, I would say, actually begins in Genesis chapter 3. Where we see the great temptation happen. We see the fall of man who rebel against God. And then we see God make a promise. That one day he's going to crush the head of the serpent. I think we see it before Pharaoh with Moses. God's word versus the world's word. And now we see it here. And this can be taught wrongly. It's really careful we get this as right as we can. Uh, This is not about David's self-esteem, David and Goliath. David and Goliath is not about overcoming opposition. It's not about like Western Carolina beating Alabama in football or something along those lines. It's about the Lord prevailing. Like God is the one who's the spotlight of the story. And he allows David to crush the head of this giant. See, every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers. So his name became well known. So David's on the prowl. As everything's rolling, he's starting to do the right things. He's starting to rule as king and the covenant we get to in 2 Samuel is very important for the rest of the scriptures to be able to understand. It's called the Davidic covenant. And it's a covenant made with King David, appointed ahead of Israel, that would lead to the coming Messiah, that w- the one who actually would rule on David's throne forever. See, David, in his gratitude towards God, wants to build God a house, basically, a temple. But God promises instead he's going to build David a house, meaning a dynasty a kingship. So one commentator said that, this is actually um, Rick Phillips, that the Davidic covenant thus identifies more precisely the promised seed who will mediate inter- international blessing. He will be a royal descendant of Abraham through David. Therefore, his covenant really, in- really introduces us a subtle but significant shift in focus from a great nation promised to Abraham to now really zooms in on a royal offspring that will lead us all the way directly to the ultimate king of Israel who will always sit on the throne named Jesus Christ. 
Here it is. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. He's intertwining David as king and the one that's to come down the road. He's talking about both of them kind of in and out throughout that passage. And we see this in Psalm 89. I, this is David. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. And we see the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So David reigned all over Israel, administering justice and righteousness to all his people. Like, these are how, this is how the world's supposed to be. Like righteousness, being administered, justice, doing what is right. It's like a taste on, really, of earth as it is in heaven. David is ruling under God's design, God's appointment, pointing us to the future, doing what is right and doing what is just. Imagine a world where everything is right and just. But this side of heaven, it never can fully be. David sees a woman named Bathsheba and is attracted to her and wants to be with her. Knows it's wrong, so he's got to figure out ways to get away with it. Knows that he's the king and she has a husband. Intentionally sets up, there's more to the story, I'd love for you to read it on your own in 2 Samuel chapter 11 sets up her husband to be killed in the front lines of battle. Then he orders her to come up and it's a whole lot to that story and I want to keep it as PG as possible. I'd love for you to read it on your own, but he has, David commits adultery. There's even more to it than that in terms of what takes place of his role as king and her vulnerability and that's a whole other story for another time. But here now we have David who's doing what's right and what is just in great sin in great sin that's going to affect many. And looks back to chapter three of Genesis. He has all the promise right in front of him. All that is good, all that is God's. And he says, you know what? There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. I gotta go around God for what I'm looking for in this moment, a feeling, fulfillment, whatever it might be, then actually go to God for the things I want in this life. So you know he has all the promises, he knows God's plan for him, God's love for him, God's story, he's willing to turn back on it all, and he does. It tells us that David was not up for ruling God's kingdom, just like Adam wasn't up for ruling God's world. We need something better. One who won't fall. One who won't make a mistake. One who won't buy the lies. And that's none of us, because I sin far too often. And so do you. I've messed up more times than I can count. I probably already sinned today in my thoughts or something. You probably have too. Or you will later. It's not, sin's not inevitable, we shouldn't say, as the redeemed people of God, but it comes and we give into it, so it can't be any of us. Now here's David, they called him a man after God's own heart, God's appointed king, and he's still doing it. A man named Nathan comes to David 
a little time after this took place, straight calls him out. Tells him a story about a man, kind of an allegorical or more of a parable kind of story. And says, this happened. And David's like, oh my gosh, how could that happen? Who is this person? Nathan's like, actually, you're the, you're the guy. Like, you're the one who did this. Straight called out. And rather than him going, oh, what about? What, what aboutism wasn't, wasn't cool yet? Him going, well, who are you to judge? Or, well, look at these five inconsistencies in your life. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you through his adultery, through his, through his sin, a, the baby actually died. Then Nathan went home. And Nathan talked about mic drop. Nathan's like, hey, you're the guy you sin. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going home. I mean, just plain and simple. A couple things here, but the biggest thing is this, that God's grace is more unthinkable than David's sin. Massive sin. But God's grace is more the theme of the story. It should make us go, what in the world? Like, how, how can God forgive him like this? Like, and then it should lead us to our own story. How can God forgive me for all the wrong I've done? And the answer is because he is good and because he's gracious and because he's merciful and because he's compassion and compassionate and there's more grace in God than there is sin in us. But evil still has its consequences. We see the child dies. And I don't know, that's not a sign to tell us that every time that we mess up, that there's going to be some serious consequence like that. This is a very particular story, a particular circumstance. But all I know about, I don't know the answers to all this, but I know that God will deal right and good with this child and has all eternity to sort it out. That's what I know. The God, this child, that God will do right and do just by this child. So we go on and David becomes rejected as king driven out, betrayed by his own son. We later see Jesus driven out where he leaves Jerusalem as the rejected king. And a few hours later after he gets out of Jerusalem, we see Jesus would die on a cross. But David was rejected because of his sin. Jesus was rejected by sinlessness. So just wrapping up here, there's so much more. These are two very long books. But I want to give you a glimpse of what God's doing in his story. Also, out front afterwards, we have the March study guide for our Bible reading plan of the whole story. I'd love for you to pick that up. But what shines through most gloriously is we see David restored as king. To me, what is the most glaring thing is not David and Goliath, it's not David's massive sin, it's God's mercy, it's God's grace. God's wrath towards sin is real and it's terrible but his mercy triumphs over judgment. And how amazing that the same David who was promised this dynasty on his throne forever, that that dynasty of this fallen man would lead to the one who has never fallen, who would give his life for sinners like David. And for sinners like you. And for sinners like me. So when we read 1 and 2 Samuel, I, I want to claim verse 17 of chapter 22. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. This is David. He pulled me out of deep water. You know, that's what God does for us. 
That's what God does for us out of our salvation. He doesn't just pull us out of deep water. He takes dead people and makes them alive. But here is David who was in deep water. And when confronted with his sin, he confessed his sin that he sinned against God. And we get Psalm 51 as a result of this. Where David gives a strong confession of his sin and his grace. Like if David would have just rejected Nathan or been what aboutism or who are you to judge or let me explain to you why this happened or you're not perfect either. If he had done all those things, we wouldn't have Psalm 51 today. One of the greatest chapters in all the Bible that I'd love for you to read for yourself later. So let's be a people who believe God's word who are depending on God for everything we're looking for in life, and, but ultimately looking to God for mercy, that we hope in Christ because we know that he is the one who has been promised, when we're people who avoid just foolish, sinful decisions based on our lies we buy into, that we need to have what the world has, rather than enjoying and believing and embracing and worshiping God for the great things he's given us, mostly Jesus Christ, the one who would shed his blood on a cross in our place, a death that we deserve so that we might live and rose from the grave three days later and is ruling and reigning forever and will one day come back for his people to establish it for all time. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful for these stories. We're thankful that you've always had a people and that you're working out everything for their good, our good for your glory. So Lord, please help us to trust you. I know it can be so easy for myself to just get distracted or get discouraged or to maybe think your promises are for somebody else. But I know they're for me in Christ because you determined this before the foundation of the world, that you would have a people. Those of us who claim the name of Christ today simply by your grace, not by our own efforts, we get to claim that promise because you are our God and we are your children. So I ask you'll help us live in a manner worthy of our calling. We'll respond to your grace and your goodness by wanting to live lives that aren't about ourselves, but about you and your glory. So we thank you for the truth of 1 and 2 Samuel and you're continuing to establish your great gospel plan for deliverance and that your mercy is so massive that our human minds will never be able to fully comprehend it. But we believe it's true, and we believe it's good, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Let's, sing and, let's stand and sing some good news together.